Greetings, this is The Pub, Australia Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the journal and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, I was joined by editors Kelsey Hoff and Destiny Crespo, and we talked with poet and novelist Hala Alyan. Hala Alyan is a Palestinian-American writer and clinical psychologist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Guernica, and elsewhere. Her poetry collections have won the Arab American Book Award and the Crab Orchard series. Her debut novel, Salt Houses, was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2017 and was the winner of the Arab American Book Award and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Her newest poetry collection, The 29th Year, was recently published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. I just wanted to start out by saying how much I absolutely love this book and have just returned to it over and over again. Um, you know, I'll flip through it and read different poems over again just because I really enjoyed the um, kind of poetry of ideas that you have going on. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. Absolutely. And I've noticed that a lot of new poetry, especially coming from um, some of the young queer poets that I'm familiar with in Chicago, uh, is starting to indulge in lived experiences more so than I've seen in the past and all the ways that the personal can be political. And I think your collection definitely does this. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like how you think of the speaker in your poem and if you think maybe the collective idea of the speaker might be changing a little bit. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I know for myself, the first time I really got a glimpse of the way that a speaker could be both personal and collective was through Suhair Hamad's, um, collection. Like I can't, I can't, now I can't remember the name of the collection, but through Suhair Hamad's work, I'll just say and she, I was like 14 when I first came across it. She was this Palestinian, like young, beautiful Palestinian woman writing in English. And I like doing all of the stuff with language that I didn't know possible. And she very much used the I and wrote in the first person. But it was, I always got the sense that she was writing for her experience, on behalf of her experience, and then also on behalf of, exper- of the experiences of other people, particularly people who like may not have access to audience and may not have access to hearing their stories and their voices heard. And I think ever since then, and, and that happened when I was relatively young, so early teens. So it's, I, I feel like I came into my own voice in poetry with an understanding of that being something that's possible mm. and with an understanding that, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do, I do believe the personal is political and I do believe that like it's often in the specificity that, that more people can kind of rally behind an experience or behind a piece of writing and say like, Oh, I understand. I can see myself in that. I see myself in that description. I see myself in that, you know, emotion. But I think that it's one of the things that allowed me to do, to write poems that were so, at times, like, ugh, like 
achingly, <laughs> flinchingly personal was to also sort of like take a step back and be like, well, okay, how can I write this in a way where it feels like I'm also, I'm also writing on behalf of like women that I've known and like my cousin and my sister and my mother and, and her mother. And, and like that kind of made it, 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 it helped me dive into it a little bit more fearlessly, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that you pointed that distinction out between like that you can have a balance in between the personal and the um, political, I guess, or like the um, like universal. Yeah, because I feel like um, that's one of the things that I was always pushing up against in my MFA program. And there was no good language that we had for mm-hmm. um, saying saying that there's a middle ground. Um, right. they just kind of pushed back against like sentimental poetry and it was really discouraging. Right. But. Yeah. And I think there's that attitude in general to, I mean, you know, in certain quarters towards like, you know, confessional poetry and like that it can be sort of like really self-indulgent and it's like, who's this for and who's the audience <laughs> for it. I mean, I think what I would say in response to that, at least from my experience is that poetry that has been confessional for me as the reader has often been where I've been able to see myself in it. Mm. It hasn't been the poetry that's been removed or used sort of like more of a removed speaker, more of a distant tone. And so I think that's like, I, I kind of just sort of in a lot of ways continued and sort of played with a tradition that, that I found worked for me as a reader. That is a perfect segue into my next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause I'm right there with you. Do you see your work as rebelling against certain poetic traditions and in what ways? I love that question. I mean, I think it is subconsciously doing that. I I wish I could say I was like s- smart or <laughs> kind of premeditated enough to like sort of, you know, like I think that an example of someone who I feel like d- has done that in this conscious way that I think is so brilliant is like Marwa Hilal mm. and like Invasive Species. I I think my writing tends to be more, I sort of just like vomit on the page <laughs> And then move it around <laughs> and then cry a little bit, <laughs> come back to it and then like figure out like what order makes the most sense and figure out how to like, you know, what, what form seems to capture what it is that I'm trying to say. So I do play, I mean, I play a lot with like form in that I'll write a lot of poems as prose poems, then I'll turn them into couplets, then I'll turn them into something different. Then I'll like, I will do a lot of that stuff, but it rather than feeling like it's a direct comment on more traditional forms of poetry i think it's it's maybe that i have felt the freedom to do that because i've seen models of that being done mm. and i also and this is not listen love mfa programs i i wish i had done one in a lot of ways but i do think not having been formally trained in any capacity helped me not like i didn't have any guidelines or structure that i had to feel restricted by or respond to or like I, I, there, I was never taught to do things in a particular way and then decide how I felt about it afterwards. I think I've always had the luxury when it comes to writing. And I feel, I do think that this is like one of the privileges of not having done an MFA and there are many of having done an MFA. And I think one of not having done one is that there really was never a time where I, I really learned yeah. much about poetry. Yeah. Like I did in like literature classes and like, you know, like I learned to read it. Okay. And, but, but a lot of it was sort of done on my own time. And so I was making things up as I went along and I was totally like, just, 
you know, I'd see someone had done something that I liked and I'd be like, okay, cool. So I guess that means I can do that thing. Yeah. You know, like I, I, someone can like a poem can be in couplets and then in the middle of it, just sort of sprawl across the page. And I guess that's okay. And I think that that is, and you sort of like references earlier in terms of like, you know, with, with like your MFA program and like that experience of, of kind of having to push up against a lot of rules, whether they're, whether they're explicitly said or sort of more implicit. And that is one of the things that I never really felt like I had to do. I, I had a lot of imposter syndrome in different ways because I felt like I never was ever trained. I don't know what a lot of terms mean when it comes to poetry, which is really embarrassing. Like there's a lot that I don't know, mm-hmm. but I've never had to struggle with like a set of rules given in like a classroom setting. Um, and I think that has, for me at least helped knowing like how I move through the world. That's been like useful. Yeah. And I think for sure, just from, you know, the, the teacher end of it and remembering my experience as a student, those rules, I can see kind of now why they're in place, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. lots of, fic- you know, totally. I, yeah, I did fiction writing in, you know, college and, uh, you know, teachers would be like, there, there will be no dragons. <laughs> There will be no swords. There will be no spells cast in your stories, and that's because they've read a hundred million stories. Yeah, really bad stories. But then again, you know, you should write what comes natural, right? Right, and then how to like kind of have. I mean, I do. So I, I now adjunct at NYU in the undergrad, and like teach these intermediate poetry and fiction workshops, and and like that is something that I think I am always struggling with because I'm because sometimes I'm like, what are the rules to teach them? Mm-hmm. And so they just sort of end up being kind of these more intuitive things I've picked up. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, also how to like give enough guideline and enough structure without then. I don't know without like stealing someone's joy, if that makes sense. Yeah, that <laughs> like, well, makes yeah. yeah perfect sense. I yeah. had a really great experience. I'm teaching a uh, first year composition at Columbia in Chicago right now. Mm. I actually had a good talk with my students the other day about um, looking at genres of writing and how much um, those rules can restrict or um, give you like freedom to say what you want to say like mm. intelligently and better. And some of my students were like, restrictions are great. They're challenges. And they mm, push totally. you to... Totally. Yes. Look at you, freshman. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's so true. It's so true. Like, I mean, I think there is this, you know, there can be this kind of like rabble without a cause. Like, no, you told me to write this way. I'm not going to write this way. But I do think there's something really exhilarating about being like, okay, now you have like... The, maybe some of the stuff that you naturally turn to is being taken away from you. What are you going to replace it with? Yeah. And I think that's always kind of an exciting thing to put forth. Yeah. So like thinking about, um, writing for the sake of publishing and writing for yourself and all of the like internal struggles that are in these poems and the tension, one of the tensions I picked up on was like tension between being present in the moment for something happening and like being able to escape from that. I was wondering about how you see the relationship between writing as an art form and writing like as therapy kind of, and um, how much those two can coexist. I think in general, like it kind of depends on the intention. I think like the intention, like if it's going to be something that you're doing as an art form, it's a good idea for the, the, the primary intention to be that, to be creating something as art. Mm -hmm. And if the secondary intention is also that you're like, this is a difficult thing to write about. And it's something I've wanted to do for a while. That's great. 
But I think that's very different than when the primary intention is to cope and to heal and to process something through writing. Mm. I find it really distracting when I'm trying to do that to also be thinking about publication. I would say I find it impossible because I'm just censoring and then I'm thinking about how something sounds and then I'm thinking about embellishing and then I'm not sure if like this is working or that. And that I think for me gets in the way of doing the like the more like less glamorous, more grunt work, Mm -hmm. oftentimes less aesthetically pleasing of just creating a piece as a form of like therapeutic release. Yeah. Um, And so I always tell like when, when, when I'm running workshops or whatever about this stuff, I'm always telling people like the first task when it comes to like therapeutic expression or sorry, creative expression as, as coping, the first job should really be create the piece after in, in a, in a, create the piece with an eye towards truth first. Mm. tell the truth, tell it as, as intensely and as, as wholeheartedly as you can first and foremost. Afterwards, when you're editing, when you've had a little bit of time, when you've processed, when you've whatever that's, I really do believe that's when you can come back and turn it into something that can be published. You can turn it again. You can figure out like, well, I got to take this out if I'm going to publish it because I can't have my mom read this or I got to, you know, <laughs> that's totally fine. Yeah. Like that's totally fine to do later. But I think if that, if you're trying to do that in the first iteration of something that's intense and difficult to write, then, then I think you've kind of robbed yourself of the opportunity to like, to first really see what comes out when you're thinking about this issue or thinking about this event or thinking about this, whatever. Um, so I think, I definitely think they overlap, but I just think they kind of, they require different stages and different levels of interaction and like intentionality. Uh, One of uh, (laughs) your poems actually made me a little emotional. One line that I loved Uh, It was called Upstate Part 2, I believe. Uh, You wrote, Darling, I worked by Hourglass. I wrote songs so that someday you may sing. Like, it was really hard just to say that. (laughs) Um, I love that line so much. And it really made me so curious as, like, who you write for. I mean, I know there's more for yourself, but is there something you want other people to get out of it? Yeah. I mean, that, like, that poem, I remember exactly where I was with that line. I was in, I was at Yaddo which sounds like such an obnoxious writerly thing to say, but it just happens <laughs> to be that I was at Yaddo. I'm not like someone that's done a ton of residencies, but I happen to be at Yaddo. And my husband was in Australia and I had just spent this like, like sort of like a like, couple of days. It was raining outside. Couldn't really leave when the rain would stop. I'd go outside and walk around and try not to get, Lyme disease and just like look at the dew <laughs> on the grass and like it was cold and it was rainy and it was drab and I, ev- like every day I was reading hours and hours and hours and hours of poetry like to the point of feeling kind of depersonalized and and I was thinking about how different like his day-to-day present like like someone was saying earlier like present moment like how different his present moment was literally across the world right now he's like in the middle of the desert in Darwin Australia um <laughs> and I was and, and I was sort of thinking of like how you know like what, what, who in that moment, what the purpose of writing that piece was and what the purpose of writing was, was like a way of trying to reach across the ocean, reach across the world and like, wow. you know, just like touch fingertips for like a second. Mm. Um, I and, and I, but I, but I think like the, the larger question in general is like some of the yous are really specific. Mm-hmm. Their cousins, their grandmother, their mother, their uh-huh. exes, their whatever, and, and some of the use, and I think increasingly, and I haven't quite analyzed this too much internally, but like, I will, <laughs> but like there's, there's like, this has been shifting in my writing where it's like, I feel like the use are becoming 
kind of more general mm. and kind of more open and kind of more universal. And I think that like, I'm, I do think I'm often writing for others or with others in mind for better or worse. Mm. Like, I don't know what that said. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. know what that means or what that says or, but I do think it's something that I found myself kind of doing more and more of is like, is just kind of being cognizant of not so much audience as much as subjects. Mm-hmm. And, and it is something that I think like there are poems, there are poems where the you is me and those are always really intense. And I know exactly which ones they are. And they, you know, like we're emotional to write and are emotional to read and are emotional to think about. I almost think that if I tried to write too much just for myself, it would be overwhelming. And I don't know that I would be able to do it for very long. Hmm. So I actually think there's something about thinking about the other, whoever that may be that, that helps diffuse some of the like emotionality and intensity that comes with writing. for me. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely saw it as something like, um, because it, it gets so heavy and it's not all, you know, pretty the whole time. It's right. definitely something that could give someone bravery to talk about these kind of things and mm. write about these kind of things. Yeah. So that's why I think why I really, really like that line. Thank um, you. Uh, this question is going to seem really, really simple and basic, but I kept thinking this when I was reading it because I've read a lot of uh, nonfiction books recently. I was mm. wondering why poetry form? Yeah. That's <laughs> a good question. I mean, okay. Why poetry? Because... I don't think I, I would be able to handle a book like this as nonfiction. Mm. I don't think people in my life would be able to handle a book like this as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be something that changes at some point, but it's, it's too much. Writing it as poetry was too much, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, I also think that it's a story that is really disjointed for me and fragmented still. And I don't think I would be able to try to create a coherent narrative. And I think rather than attempting that there was a liberty and a freedom in just saying, here's the mess you figured out <laughs> because I, because I, can't, or this is the best I've That's been awful. able to do, you know? And so like, I, I actually think like having to, like trying to do like a memoir or trying to do something like, like it just, it would have been too much. And and I think the cost might have been too high. I don't know. I think it could be cool. I've done some nonfiction essays. I've really enjoyed it. I am always thinking about the people in my life, especially mm-hmm. people who like interface with whatever stories that I'm telling. And that might be cultural. It might be something that I outgrow. It might be something that changes. But for now, I feel like it's 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 a little bit too much of a thing in the room mm-hmm. when I'm writing that I, I think it wouldn't even be like a good piece of writing if I tried to do it. The other thing too is that I mean this is not straight me- this is not straight memoir like a, a lot of a lot of the things I'm trying to play with in this collection is like how unreliable memory is mm. mm-hmm. especially if you're talking about addiction especially if you're talking about trauma especially if you're talking about dislocation and immigration and like a lot of these things are reimaginings of situations mm-hmm. you know what I mean like mm-hmm. they're it's kind of like filling in the night at the end of a blackout like mm-hmm. I don't I, like a lot of these things are not things that just directly happened the way that they're written in the poem. They're sort of like they're, they're, the, the endings are rewritten. They're reimagined. They're given kind of a different lens. They're, they're made more palatable to me. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's like a way of taking agency back. And so I think that also would be like a real problem. I mean, I would have like a serious million little pieces problem if I tried to like write a book and be like, this is just nonfiction. And people would be like, no, it's not. <laughs> 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 that did 
not happen. <laughs> so, so I think that like, that's one of the things that I love about poetry too, is that it can be this place where like, I'm, I am in a lot of ways just sort of un, like reimagining, unimagining, rewriting, redoing, unmaking, remaking these, <laughs> these huge experiences in my life. And, and I can do it in the genre that feels really safe to do it in. Mm. That's cool. I think in that turn too, though, it really humanizes it because memories are usually not fluid. <laughs> so I did like the format. Like, so in the past like few years, I've taken lots of poetry classes and I've mm. seen like this trend of people not really being too enthusiastic about it. I even remember in high school when it was poetry unit, <laughs> people were like, oh God. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was really curious, uh, like, what would you tell, like, a classroom of students who are not, you know, not sure about poetry? What would be the benefits of writing or even just reading poetry, old and new? Here's what I'd say. I'd say, especially because these people tend to be younger, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say give it a shot because nobody's ever going to have to, and nobody's ever going to make you do it again in your life. <laughs> and yeah. so you might be missing out on something if you just, like, sulk your way through this class. True. like you might as you're here, you might as well give it a shot because there's the chance that you might find something that absolutely changes your life, which has happened to millions of people before you. And there's a chance that you might be like, I don't like poetry. Mm -hmm. And if it's the latter, it won't have really cost you anything to have tried to pay to pay attention and to really take in the readings and to really see what you can create. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the Mm -hmm. the, the potential benefit so vastly outweighs the cost of like, sitting up and like ears pricking up and like really taking in the reading and spending some time and meditating on it and like trying to create something that feels authentic and honest. Like what what that might give you is the world and what it'll cost you if it turns out that it's not for you is nothing. (laughs) It's very true. Yeah. It seems as if that experience early on may be tainted by what we consider to be classic you know i think lots of yeah i think so you know i think so yeah i mean so so much of poetry is political and in the now close to spoken word and hip-hop and it's totally you know what i mean and i think if if you package it in that way it's it's it's, exhilarating yeah and it's really familiar to Mm -hmm. most students but it doesn't really happen that way i guess no, and there seems to still be this insistence that like that you get to that through the classics first. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. I almost think like it it I almost think it could be the opposite. Like yeah. it would it would almost be like catch people's attention first. Yeah. And then say, now that I've got you, would you be interested <laughs> in seeing what inspired the <laughs> yeah. thing that you just read yeah. that you love? Yeah. Because let's go back and look, I don't know how many years ago. Like this, I mean, that's, this is what led to the thing that you just read that you enjoyed. Yeah. Like I am, you know what I mean? Like I think kind of the order in which we do it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I would agree. I've talked about that a whole lot, um, in the last couple of years and especially, uh, making the move from Kenosha, Wisconsin to Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You moved moved from the metropolis of Kenosha to the small town life of Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) even the way even the way we teach at columbia um is so i mean columbia is like an artsy artsy school um, sure especially compared to uh the good old uw parkside but um (laughs) yeah i just i think social media is really helping with being able to share videos and things like that Mm -hmm. of performances and um it's i think poetry is having a like, you know, and having a moment, uh, and, right. um, 
I think I think a lot of that's going to change, and I would I would really like to really like to see um, that you know learn the classics first approach change, um, just like the rest of education is changing with you know the internet is not going to go away. <laughs> um, right, 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 right. Yeah, there is sort of a like ex- like a sort of I think it requires kind of an acceptance of like a new world order that's always scary and unsettling, but I think. It's not, I don't know, I feel like it would be less scary and unsettling if, if there was an understanding that nobody's taking away the classics or saying don't teach the classics, just that maybe don't open with them. Yeah. You know, that actually I think first I would do the thing that grabs the attention, the glitzier, mm-hmm. like just kind of more more um, glittery thing first. And then, and then I'd be like, here, and now let's talk about this. And now let's see what the traditions are here. Now let's see how we even got to a place where this was considered an art. This is considered an art form. Yeah. I mean, I was the other week we were interviewing, I think it was Arcady Martin um, who wrote a science fiction novel. And Mm -hmm. we talked a little about, it's just sort of making me think of it. We talked a little bit about, about fantasy and how as a genre, there is this sort of clinging to the old guard, you know, the Tolkien-esque, it has mm. to be done this way. It must have elves. It must have, you know, all this stuff because right. that's where it all came from. But fantasy now is really exciting, super diverse, you know, N.K. Jemisin right. is like reinventing the entire genre and it has none of that old stuff. And that old right. stuff doesn't have to go away, but right. in some ways totally. it doesn't have to come first, Right. Exactly. Exactly. It it can become optional. It can become yeah. something that you play with more. It can be. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's again. It's just. It's sort of like it's scary. Like it yeah. would be like somebody telling me that you know, I, you know what? Actually, here's a good example. It's it's like the new trend of therapy through texting. Yeah. Right. Like the text therapy. Yeah. And I and I I'm ambivalent about that. And I know people who are outright livid about it. Yeah. They're like, nope, that takes out the elements of like interaction and connection, and that's what makes therapy therapy, and that's what you know. So I can understand even just as someone who's in that field, that, that knee jerk, like, no, 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 this isn't how we do it. Yeah. You know, and, th- and then like sort of after that, there has to be a little bit of the like, well, just, just cause you do something a certain way doesn't mean it that, you know, like it's, a, it's just a weird, it's hard. It, I mean, I think that it's going to sound so like dumb, but like change is difficult. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, like, it's like, it's not comfortable. Right. And, and I think we forget that over and over again. And as a teacher, you know, there are certain things it's like a, I have I have these people for, you know, six weeks where I'm going to do this poetry stuff. And how dare me not teach Keats during that time? Because right. you exactly. have to have exactly. Keats. Exactly. You know what I it's mean? Like irrespo- it's considered irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You kind of touched on this already, but it was something me and another editor were really curious about because editing poetry has always been such like this huge gray area that we were never really sure about. Mm. So it's always a lot of conversations with the authors to get things down. So I was kind of wondering in more detail, like exactly your editing process or how this even becomes a book. Like you said, you vomit things, you just like vomit a bunch of papers. And one day you're like, yes. I'm going to put this into a book. And, you know, I'm yes. just wondering what your process is. I'm not a great edit- editor. I'm not great at the editing process. It's sort of the editing level. Like it's kind of the part of the process that I enjoy the least and feel the least confident about. Um I really defer to my publishing editors and I'm actually like, I know a lot of people that are very protective of their work and are like, I wrote it to be read like this, or I meant this, right. Mm-hmm. And I'm the, I will literally be like, you do whatever you, like I sent it to my 
editor. <laughs> and I had done some ordering for sure. Like I printed all the stuff out. So first it's like the vomit and then you do an, you, like I did like a, a go through and trying to gather, um, poems, like kind of first of all, create them into poems and try to write like poems from this incomprehensible, like sludge of words. And <laughs> then once I had what I felt like were decent poems, I print them all out and I play with them on the floor, like a jigsaw puzzle and try to figure out what, mm. how to order it, like cluster them, what mm. sections they should be in. Mm. Um, and then when I, when Houghton Mifflin acquired the book and my, and I was working with my editor, I mean, I basically just was like, you can do whatever you want. Huh. <laughs> like, like I don't, I don't mind. I don't care. I mean, it's all like, I'm happy. Like there's no, I, I mean, I truly was, yeah, just completely hands off <laughs> mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, and I think that in some ways made it more difficult for sure. Yeah. Um, for her, but I, but, she, but I was, but I think it, but I think in some ways maybe it made it a little bit easier. Like I, I do think there was, there was an extent to which like having that much freedom must like, like I just never pushed back on anything. I was just like, I I've learned to really trust that like my right, like to not be super precious about my work mm-hmm. and to kind of assume that at the end of the day, like, you know, people have different areas of expertise. I am not, I'm not that great at editing. Mm. And so I want to be able to defer that to my editor. And my editor, Jenny was like incredible and was just like whip smart, put it like turned it into something that I, I couldn't believe what she had done. I mean, she really got the heart of it. And so in a lot of ways I feel, I do feel bad, like sometimes taking credit for even like the ordering I can't take credit for because that had a lot to do with her. She saw like, she saw something I didn't see. And then she kind of moved the poems around, Mm. um, so I think that's my, yeah, my editing advice is get a good editor <laughs> and, and like, and like relinquish the stuff you're not great at, like know what your strengths are. Yeah. It, right away in the first section of the 29th year, there were poems, like I kept seeing this reoccurring idea of things that were stolen in Dirty Girl. It's like earrings in 1999. It's clothes and books in Gospel Rumi. The speaker smuggles herself. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a sense of sort of unfulfilled desire that runs throughout the poems. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the way that your poetry comments on the things we desire, the things we're denied and the things that we want to take or claim? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that like the idea of, like, I was such a little klepto when I was a kid (laughs) and, and I definitely, I really wasn't. And I definitely think like I, I had a lot of shame around it for a, for a while. And then as I got older, I was like, Oh, like that was a way of trying to make sense of the world. And that was a way of trying to have control over the world. And that was a way of trying to lace, like, you know, sort of be like, like, this is my corner in this planet. This belongs to me because we moved so much. And there was always sort of the specter of like Palestine and, and disposition and dislocation and immigration. And like, I think it was in a lot of ways, me trying to be like, well, I, I'm going to take something back. And unfortunately it was like, you know, things that didn't belong, (laughs) but, 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 but I, but in some ways I'm I'm always like, what was I trying to play out there? I mean, there is sort of this parallel process there too, of like, of just like taking and wanting and then returning and then not being able to have something. And so being like, okay, then I, if I can't have that, I'm going to just take something else. And, um, and so I think that is like, it's, it's definitely one of the themes that's through the book, partly because, as I was like 
kind of mining my memories for like all these different things that connected with, um, identity and development and, and love and gender and all these things that are sort of salient throughout the book, I realized how important like hunger was Mm. and like sort of denying, like denying the self hunger, denying the self desire, denying the self. And what happens if you do that enough is that the self eventually erupts and just takes. Um, and so I think that's something that like it kind of happened naturally almost through these poems. It was like, you know, if I'm trying to tell the story again, truthfully of like, what is my relationship with wanting? What is my relationship with desire? What's my relationship with taking? Then, then it, it is sort of the story of like self-denial, 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 binge, binge, binge. And I don't even mean that. I don't mean that with food. I mean like sort of in life, you know, yeah. excess, 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 and then dearth, 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 and then excess, 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 and then like just, you know, reaching a point, which is where, you know, the stage that I'm still at, which is like how to find an in-between yeah. between those two modes that I've kind of lived in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the big things about this shift from 29 to 30 is like making peace with those um, things that just aren't going to be right and realizing that like you're going to have to live the rest of your life, um, yes. you know, and it's going to get harder physically and like it's going to have to get come to peace with some things. Yeah. Yes. That there is, there is sort of, and there's a surrender, right? And that's, I yeah. mean, that's something I'm, I'm definitely still you know, in my 33rd year, like figuring out and learning how to do and learning how to like come to terms with is like, there is this, I'm not somebody for whom surrender comes naturally. It's not like my, my mode of being hmm. as much as like fighting, resisting, pushing back, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of yeah. like the way that I operate in the world. And it's also the way that I've survived. And it's the thing that's gotten me this far. So I was like, you know, how to find a way to like honor that and be kind to that and like thank that. And then also be like, you, you may not be useful in this part of my life, Yeah. you know, or like you're not, or you're not helping me here. Yeah. And I think that's been a big part of, you know, some of the stuff that I've been thinking about more lately is like how to, you know, how to thank the stuff that has served you in different places and then also acknowledge the ways in which it may not be serving you anymore. Yeah. Uh, in the poem, The Worst Ghosts, you begin with a moment of violence, uh, an airport bombing. Uh, and we mm. find that the speaker keeps a piece of like the shattered window from the airport. Um, and this isn't the only place where there's sort of glass or window mm. imagery in the collection. And it's often like this fractured, shattered lens that we're kind of looking through. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that imagery in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think windows are, I mean, I just, on a very, like, maybe kind of dumb level, like, I think windows are really interesting, and I think the idea of also just, like, mirrors, I think there's a lot of mirrors as well, and, mm-hmm. like, like, like the idea of kind of doubling and mirroring and, you know, kind of uh, this sense of, like, trying to capture an image of something and trying to be on the outside of something and figure out what it looks like from that vantage point. But then it's obviously it's never the same, right? Like what you're looking in the mirror isn't actually representative of what you're seeing and what you're looking when you're outside a window is never representative of what's inside or in the other side of the window. Um, and so I think of them as these really interesting kind of transitional spaces and, and sort of borderlands in a way that like break, like any borderland breaks. And so I think for me, like that's, they've always, I remember from the first time, I came across like broken glass. I think it was in Beirut um, after some, like something had happened or a riot or, or a protest or something. 
And, and just, I remember like having that distinct thought of like, oh, how weird, what an illusion that was that that pane of glass in the storefront was like actually keeping anything out. Yeah. It was just this like thing we told ourselves. Yeah. And I think there's something very similar that happens with like borders in general Yeah, and like walls and, you know, um, so I think, I think that's something that happens in like, that's, that's one of the reasons I think that it is used so much in the poem because there are, there is a lot of discussion of these sort of like borderlands and transitional spaces and these things that are really kind of more amorphous than we want to admit. Um, and I think that the, they like that definitely falls in that category for yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, in the same poem, I really love the line, uh, the worst ghosts are the ones that don't come back. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, the memories that your poem, your poetry meditates on in like, in a sense, are they necessary hauntings? Yeah. I mean, I think that they are, I think like, I think I am, I'm sort of like making peace. And I think the collection is, is part of the process of making that piece with this idea that like, that we, we are all going to be haunted by certain things and we are, we're all going to be sort of stalked by certain things. And, and that there, it is kind of like a go or be dragged thing where it's like, I think rather than resisting it, there is merit in asking like, why are these the things, why are these images, these symbols, these dreams, these memories, these whatever, why are they the things that keep kind of returning to me in my life? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that there are, I mean, you know, just so like the comment that was being made earlier is like, like some things will never be made right. And I think that's true of like also the things that we get haunted by is like, yeah. some of these things are just never going to go away. And then, so how to make peace with that and how to make space and like, like allow for that to be something that's part of your life in a way that you, you know, you're, you're kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you're not, not necessarily submitting to or relenting in this way where it's like, now this is all that's important, but you are kind of being like, okay, this is something I can't really control. Like, you know, you experience a trauma or you experience a loss or experience whatever, you will always be somebody that experienced that trauma. You'll always be somebody that experienced that loss. It won't be the only thing about you or necessarily your defining characteristic, but it will always be something that's part of your history. Whether you like that history or not, it's part of your story. Yeah. Your poems are also, uh, many of them are set in urban spaces and they're sort of war-torn, unromanticized, uh, filled with violence or the threat of violence, you know, they're sort of alive with the memory of it in some, in some instances. Can you talk about the role of the quote unquote, the city as a concept in your work? Yeah. I mean, I think the city for me has always been like another character. I mean, the mm-hmm. city is, it's, it's a, it's a living place. Um, it's been like that in the fiction that I write. It's been like that in the poetry that I write. Like I'm, I think of myself as like a different person depending on where I am located spatially. Um, I, and that definitely comes from just a childhood of like moving around a lot, being a different person in Oklahoma than I am in Lebanon, that I am in Texas, that I am in the United Arab Emirates. Like, like, like there, there is sort of a necessity of adapting depending on your location. And so I, I began to think of cities almost as this sort of like almost having this like magical element about them because yeah. they, pulled for different things from me. And so that was always like really fascinating to be like, Oh, what, what, what part of me is going to come out in this different place? What part of me is going to be, um, you know, kind of, uh, tamped down, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like you, like here I speak with a certain accent and I talk in a certain way. And like, there are certain parts of myself I've learned that like 
are more palatable or, or are more digestible. And that's very different than how it is in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like the city almost feels like this. I mean, it is this ecosystem and it is this kind of <laughs> this figure that like, it's almost like mythological that like it, it, it kind of determines how you behave and what is pulled from you. Mm. Um, and so I, I've always kind of treated that element of my writing. Like I, I, I give it a lot of deference because I, I do think that I write different poetry depending on where I am. And I write different poetry depending on where I'm, what I'm writing about yeah. and where it's located. And that's like, it is something that I've just like learned to, to like always make room for in the process. Um, there's se- there are several poems that mm, sort of touch on religion. We get get in several of the titles. There are certain gospels and so on. Can you talk about the role of or the the non-role in some instances of religion in your writing? Yeah, I mean, I think religion. I don't know. I mean, I think religion for me is like this thing that I am always trying to understand my relationship to. Mm-hmm. I. I am a believer, whatever that means. And that's something that I think is also always kind of changing and evolving. I think of myself as very culturally Muslim, that identity matters to me a lot. Uh Um, and my interfacing with it changes. It's like always kind of changing depending again, also depending on where I am. I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think that it's, it, it impacts my work in the same way that landscape impacts my work in that it's something that it tells me what to pay attention to. Yeah. And so that determines what I'm likely to be describing and it impacts the imagery and it impacts the lens through which I'm, I'm thinking about things. And I think that that's something like, you know, with a lot of these poems, especially when talking about like addiction or, or, or going through things that are more difficult, like, like there is a lot of talk, I think about surrender and like admit powerlessness and like, you know, and I think that's, that's a process that you go through, not just with getting sober or, coming to terms with something that's like heartbreaking or, you know, coping with a loss. It's something that you have to, it's something you have to do if there's any sort of, if there's any sort of interfacing with faith Yeah, is that there is a surrender and there is kind of like, you know, a sort of relinquishing of control and a relinquishing of power um, to a certain degree. And like, I, I was just talking about this in another interview, like how I love the phrase in Arabic, um, trust in God, but tie up your camels mm-hmm. and how like, I feel like that really speaks to, the, my kind of understanding of spirituality, which is like, you know, have faith in something, but like do your part. Yeah. And like that thing isn't, you know, it's not going to do it for you. Yeah. Um, whatever that is, we know you call it an energy universe, God, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sort of combination of like faith and surrender. And then also like, you know, moral responsibility and like agency and whatever. I think that has always like really appealed to me. The one question we always ask, the, uh, the writers we have on the show um, is what, do you have any advice for beginning poets, beginning writers? I think yes. <laughs> so one of the, I don't know why I said, I think yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I, I would say read voraciously mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people say that, but I really mean it. Yeah. Um, I would also start paying attention to how poetry lives in different things. Yeah. Like in song lyrics and in films and in different kinds of like snippets of instrumental music. And like, I would start paying attention to how everything can kind of be poetry. Mm -hmm. I think I would also say if you can stomach it, 
to try to perform your work and read it aloud. I think that's really important. I think it helps a lot with like rhythm and tone and then just also just kind of confidence and being willing to stand behind your work. Yeah. So like I'm, I'm a big fan of like find an open mic and do the scary thing and read your work. Yeah. Um, it really helped me. And I think it's like a really important part of the process. And then I also, I mean, along with that, which is, you know, one of the things that'll happen if you do that often is like you find a community, mm-hmm. which is like a wonderful thing. Yeah. And I think that's the, I mean, I think in some ways that would be like the biggest piece of advice is like find people that are just as excited about doing this thing as you are. Yeah. Because it can like, because it will become hard, even if you love it, you know, loving something and it being easy or not like necessarily <laughs> exclusive things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I think like, you know, finding a way to create a community. And I know that in certain, depending on where you are geographically, it's easier in some places than in others. Obviously in New York, it's like, yeah, it's not a difficult thing to do to find a community of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, even if your community is one person or two people or three people or rely on the internet and rely on the idea that you can, there's different ways to be connected to people and create a little, you know, writing workshop of your own or a group of people who maybe just like, it can be as simple as like, like an email chain where like when people come across poems, they like they email it to each other Yeah. or it can be like an email chain where it's like when you write something new, you send it to each other. I love doing like, um, poems back and forth with mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. I just did that with my friend in April where like for the 30 day challenge where it's like, I'd write a poem, send it to him. He'd write a poem, send it to me. And like, it was a lovely way of like, you know, being held accountable. And then also just sort of getting to read this amazing writer's work and staying inspired and kind of, being like, okay, now that makes me want to do even better. Um, and I think like kind of using those sort of resources is is also just a way of saying like, I don't know, like kind of invested in the process and also just like it stays fresh that way. Yeah. And it, and it's a lot more productive than sending memes back and forth. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. And and again, like, I don't, I mean, some people are passionate about memes, in which case go for it. But like, you know, if you're passionate about poetry, like I think it it is definitely a better use of your time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us. Oh my God, you're so welcome. And thank you so much for having me. Sure. It was so great meeting you. Yeah. The Pup is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in Sundays at 2 to catch new episodes. And you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylightmag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates on new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing.
Thank you.